BTW, I don't know if you've discovered this yet, I love the Word of God. Anybody else with me in that camp? I think it is the most interesting, fascinating, entertaining, educational thing on the planet. And to prove whether these things be so, the Lord gave us the book of Ruth. It is so deep and so rich. And I just want you all to remember, we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more that you can discover on your own. So I do pray that there has been a kindling in your heart and a firing of your imagination to go and pursue not just this study, but every study that you undertake, uh, because there's a wealth of, of treasure just waiting for the diligent student. So we need to see what happens with Ruth next. We left her in the dead of night at the feet of Boaz. So let's get her out of that condition and find out what will happen from there. Now, starting in chapter 3 of Ruth, verses 8 and 9, and you follow along, but there are some times when you just can't beat the King James for me. So I'm going to read these couple verses in the King James just because that's the way I love it. Okay, are you ready? Ruth chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid, and he turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thy handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a kinsman. When she asks him to spread his skirt, that's that Hebrew word, kanaf. It means the wing or the covering. Uh, and then the word that she uses there for kinsman is that word redeemer. It's the word goel. So she is proposing marriage according to the law of the leveret marriage. She is asking him to be her goel, her protection, her covering, her redeemer. Boaz, bless his heart, is startled out of a dead sleep. I imagine that this older bachelor never saw this coming. He never thought this kind of an experience would come his way. But he has grown to love Ruth over the course of the several weeks that they have been acquainted. And we can gauge his complete surprise and delight and humility by his response to Ruth's request. Verses 10 and 11. And now I'm back in the New American Standard. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For you, for all my people in the city, know that you are a woman of excellence. Every time I read that verse, I remember that we have a better than Boaz. His name is Jesus Christ. And I hear him say these words to me. Now read it again and picture the Lord Jesus saying this to you. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. Jesus said, ask for anything. Ask the Father for anything in my name. And then he goes on to say, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Boaz had people in the city. All my people, says Boaz. It sounds like there's two camps, two opinions in Bethlehem. Those who are Boaz people recognize the quality, the excellence 
of Ruth. And the opinion of the others does not affect Boaz's opinion at all. When we come to Christ, his people become our people. And though we might be a bunch of misfits and weirdos, amen, uh, we, as we get to know each other, we begin to see Christ in each other, and we recognize the excellence of Christ in you, and in you, and in you, and in me. And suddenly, we just grow to love one another. Ruth, in the meantime, must have been elated and relieved by his response because he could have rejected and publicly humiliated her. He could have stood up there in the dead of the night and said, what in the world do you think you're doing and wake the whole camp? He did not do any of those things, of course, but she is, never forget, a girl from the toilet bowl. So he could have rejected her. Uh, and in fact, some of you who have studied on may think that this is a violation of the law of Moses, taking a Gentile bride and a Moabite to boot. But what the law cannot do, grace does do. Now there is, just for your information, a command not to marry Moabites specifically. Some Bible scholars will uh, say that the restriction speaks of Moabites as husbands, not Moabites as wives. So that's a technicality. You can suss that out for yourself. Uh, our restriction is becoming unequally yoked with a non-believer. And that's the heart of God yesterday, today, and forever. It was not the Moabites that God prohibited. It was an unbelieving pagan Moabite, okay? In Deuteronomy, for your notes, chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, you read that both Ammonites and Moabites were restricted. And it was the fact that they were, if they were individuals, still following those pagan uh, Religious beliefs, the practices of those people groups apart from God was some of the most vile uh, religious rituals and observances. And then you will also continue to read that the, the phrases used of these people groups, it's the Moabites, the Ammonites, and eunuchs, interestingly enough, are forbidden in the assembly of the Lord. So this assembly of the Lord can also be two things. Uh, they would assemble for religious purposes, but they also assembled for political purposes. And this is believed to be the political variety because we know that our loving father welcomes all who will come to him. Uh, we are all on a level ground. There is there now, therefore, no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no male or female. When you come to Christ, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what you've done. You are on a level plane with the one you perceive as the most godly, holy individual on the planet. And our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as I said. So if he said it, to Ruth in uh, Bethlehem, he's saying it to you today. Anyone in any age who genuinely puts their faith in the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sin, he will in no wise cast out. If you're born again, you're in. And that's the end. Uh, Boaz is in love with this woman, and he says that she is known as a woman of excellent character. In the Hebrew, it is Isha. Chayil, and you, if you remember from a few weeks back, that word Chayil was used of Boaz. He was a gibor Chayil, a man of excellence. And so he applies that same phrase to her. 
And that she is a foreigner doesn't bother him in the least. I am reminded of a woman named Rahab. Her story for your notes is recorded in the early chapters of Joshua, and she's also mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 31. And y'all, I love this woman, Rahab. I always imagine her living there in that idol-worshiping world and with growing dissatisfaction. And because of what she did for a living, Rahab the harlot, I imagine she was up nights and would uh, spend a lot of time having conversations with her customers, the travelers and the tradesmen and the caravan folk that would come through Jericho, that enormous walled city. And again, if you have a house on the city wall of one of those great cities, it's like having a penthouse apartment in Manhattan. This was a successful wealthy businesswoman who had a going concern. And she would, I picture her just looking out her window some of those nights across the Jordan River, seeing that pillar of fire lighting up the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud by day. And she must have thought, I don't understand. I don't know what they have, but I want it. And I picture her meeting those two spies on the day they came in. And she's so hungry. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't have a spiritual understanding of Jehovah God. She doesn't understand that a people group could follow one God. But she has heard from these tradesmen all these years that she's been in business about the fact that God has provided food and water for them miraculously for 40 years. And these tradesmen are also frustrated because they can't sell them a thing because their God doesn't even allow their shoes to wear out. And she's heard these stories of this one God who is sufficient to meet all needs and vanquish all enemies. And here come these two spies and she takes one look and she says, I will hide you. I will help you escape. What's your price? Your God, done. Red cord out the window, walls come down, salvation accomplished and Rahab is saved. Then she goes along and she meets a Hebrew man named Salmon. And Salmon says, I'm going to marry you, even though you are an idol-worshiping Gentile who also happens to be a harlot, because she has fully come to the God of Israel with full belief and faith and repentance. She was so hungry and so ready to be a, a member of the camp of Israel that she gave up everything that she had in order to follow him. When our daughter was about six years old, roughly, she came marching into me one day and I put the kibosh on something she wanted to do. And she was so indignant, she turned around and went up to her father and demanded, why did you marry that woman? <laughs> and he said, your mother? <laughs> you know, and I often imagine conversations in the home of Salmon and Rahab because y'all, they had a little boy whose name is Boaz. And I can picture Boaz coming home from the playground on some day saying, Dad, the kids are saying mean things about mom. Is it true? And dad says, yes, son, it's true. Dad, why did you marry her? Well, son, let me tell you a thing about your mom. 
She is the bravest woman I have ever met. She's stronger than any woman I know. And she loves God fiercely. She was a, a really important person in Jericho and a very successful businesswoman. And she gave it all up to follow the God of our people. And son, there have been times when our people have outsinned the pagans. But if we repent, God welcomes us home and forgives our sin. And if he can do that for us, why would he not also do that for your mom? And then I can picture him growing up and having conversations with his mom and hearing her say things to him like, Boaz, don't ever treat a woman based on what others say about her. Always treat women with respect and kindness. Be gentle with the weaker vessels. Be kind, be loving. Do what God has called you to do. And Boaz, please wait for God to provide the perfect wife for you in the perfect time. And here she is in the dead of night at his feet. Do you know, I think it's four times, maybe five. You'll have to count it. How many times we read that Ruth is at the feet of Boaz in this scene. What a powerful, powerful story. No wonder Boaz did not mind taking a girl from the toilet bowl for his wife. His mother trained that little boy up in the way he should go. And look at this man. He's an amazing example. Now, remember, too, that Boaz must be willing and able to be her redeemer. And he is perfect. And to complete the joy of his harvest, he will get Ruth. And yet, there is an obstacle. It's at this point in the story that I years ago decided to cast a movie version of this particular story. And in my mind's eye, I always pictured Sean Connery in the role of Boaz. Yeah? Can you believe it? Yes, good choice. Thank you very much. He's the older man. He's got that gravitas and that excellent character about him. And I can just picture a much younger woman swooning over someone who has this kind of... And, and y'all, I'm just judging on the, on the outside. I'm not talking about the quality of the man's life or anything else, because frankly, I don't know anything about him except what I see right there. So this is totally my secular view of the, of the deal. And as I told the ladies a little bit ago, uh, I have tried to update this casting in my mind, and I can't think of anybody else that I would think would fit the bill. So you younger chicks can fill me in later on who you think might, might do it. But anyway, he explains to Ruth that he is very willing and he is very able, and yet there is an obstacle. There is a nearer kinsman. He is near but there's one who's in line in front of Boaz, the nearer kinsman. And I don't want to be mean to a real human being and cast somebody, you know, who's, who's real in this part. So in my mind's eye, I always pictured that this guy who's the obstacle, <laughs> Quasimodo just comes to mind. I don't know. It's just where I go in my head. But remember that Boaz said to her, now my daughter, 
do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. And then he drops the other shoe, and the joy is momentarily dulled. And Boaz explains the predicament there in verse 12. He says, now it is true. I am a close relative. However, there is a closer than I. So the camera cuts to Ruth's close-up of her face, and she says, I'm sorry, what? There is someone closer than you? Remember, it's the dead of night, y'all. She proposes in the dark. Now, there may have been the smoldering fire. The, the moon may have been up. The stars are out. But y'all, it's the dead of night. She cannot see his face. She can only hear his voice. Do you ever feel that you're in the dark with the Lord? That you're talking to him and he's responding through your word, but still you feel like you're in darkness? Psalm 139 verse 12 says, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. You may feel like you're in the dark, but you just persist in that place, and you keep at the feet of Jesus, and the light will shine. The morning is coming, and the dawn will break, and he will give her some advice. Verses 13 and 14, he says to her, remain this night. And when the morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Ever the gentleman, Boaz, who I think must be about to jump out of his skin at this point, uh, he is wondering and wondering the whole time, is the dawn ever going to break? I got to go see this guy right now. Uh, he is going to concern himself first, though, with Ruth's reputation and her safety. He says to her, lie down until morning. So, verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And I just think that whole time, neither one of them could sleep. Do you imagine either one of them getting a wink of sleep? The whole time, Boaz must have been lighting up heaven. Oh, Lord, let him say no. Let him say no. Let him say no. And at his feet, Ruth is, Lord, let him say no. Let him say no. Let him say no. Because remember, Quasimodo. So, they're knocking on heaven all night long, and finally the, the sun comes up. Now, legally speaking, if you were going to follow the letter of the law, it was Ruth's responsibility to go and talk to this other man. Boaz takes the full responsibility of fulfilling the letter of the law onto his shoulders. The full work of redemption he accepts and he will perfect. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross at Calvary. He fulfilled the letter of the law. He was the one that went and satisfied the nearer kinsman, if you will. Before Boaz allows Ruth to depart... This older Hebrew man, remember he's like a contemporary of Naomi, he gives a symbolic gift to Ruth for Naomi. Verses 15 through 17. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, how did it go, my daughter? Who are you is what the, who art thou? The King James says, in other words, what happened is your name still Ruth the Moabitess? Are you now Ruth, the wife of Boaz? 
all right? How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, this is Ruth speaking, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And Naomi gets the message. Remember that because they're contemporaries and have a lot of the same shared history, this is a symbolic gift that Naomi would understand immediately. Uh, Boaz is taking a, a page from God's book regarding the work of creation. Six days God worked, and on the seventh day he rested. Six measures of meal uh, means I am not going to rest until the job is done. And that's what he's telling these women. So Naomi explains to Ruth in verse 18, then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Read that. It is finished. Boaz is not going to rest until he has arranged everything with the nearer kinsmen. He orchestrates a meeting at the gate of the city. The city gate was sort of like the, the town hall of yesteryear. Some Bible scholars say that Boaz held a position that would have been like the mayor of Bethlehem, perhaps. So he is a mighty man of wealth, and he's going to surround himself with the city's leading men and the nearer kinsman. And he offers the role of Goel to this man who is now the rival. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And so he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, Boaz, with all of his excellent mental qualities, is going to expertly frame this conversation. He's going to make sure that he will mention Ruth and her ancestry at just the right moment. But who is the nearer kinsman? Of what is he a type? Let's read on, verses 3 and 4. Then he, Boaz, said to the closest relative... Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. Now, of course, in the best tradition of suspenseful tales, he says he'll do it. This is Quasimodo saying, yes, I'm on the job. So redeeming the land is great, in his opinion. A man can always use more land, right? Especially when, we are, when it's producing and we had a harvest like the one we just accomplished. And this is the point at which Boaz will drop that other shoe about Ruth and her ancestry. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. What doesn't bother our hero is a deal breaker for this nearer kinsman. We're not told exactly why. This man is going to refuse Ruth, but it is uh, 
perhaps because he's already married, he has grown children, and maybe his inheritance is already parsed out and ready to go, and accepting this wife and raising up a son to her would somehow jeopardize what he's already got planned out. We aren't really sure whatever. Uh, he may be the one that says, no, she's a Moabite, and that's a violation of the law, and I'm not doing it. We don't know what the reason is, but whatever it is, he says in verses six through eight now, the closest relative said, I, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. that You may have all my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel, so that the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Now, we know that Boaz is a type of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Ruth is the Gentile bride, the church. Naomi is a type of Israel. So who is this guy? He was first in line. He was willing to do all that the law allows, but not go beyond that. And he's a rule booker. He's the guy who says, this is the letter of the law and we're going to obey it. So the nearer kinsman then is the type of the law. The law can only go so far. The law will only allow what the law allows. But where it cannot go, Jesus Christ went. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. We know from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, write this down for your notes, that the law is just a shadow of the good things to come. It's not the very image, because every type and every model is going to break down somewhere. You can have a beautiful model car that looks exactly like the real deal, but you can't get in it and drive it. So every, so every time you have a type or a model of something, it can only go so far in making the illustration. Boaz didn't die to save any of us, but the better than Boaz did, just as an example. So the law is just a shadow. It's not the real thing that was to come. Those sacrifices had to be offered year after year after year. And they were made perpetually until the true and living sacrifice came and fulfilled the letter of the law. If our salvation came by the letter of the law, we would still today be making bloody sacrifices. Those sacrifices, just because they were the shadows and all of the true and living sacrifice now, who is, has required that it never need be repeated again. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is once for all. That's all people in all time, past, present, and future. And also, when you look in the mirror, for all your sin yesterday, today, and forever. It was one sacrifice that covers the sin of all for all, in all. That's an amazing and astounding truth. Nothing was left undone by Christ's sacrifice. And so now redemption is for those who draw near under his wings. It is made perfect. The bride and the bridegroom are made one in perfect unity. John chapter 17. This is the great high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross. 
And in chapter 17, verse 23, he says, as he's praying to the Father, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We are united as one in Christ. Boaz perfected Ruth's redemption. And so the whole world may know that the whole world of Bethlehem may know, but Boaz will joyfully announce to everyone that he will indeed be Ruth's Goel. She and Naomi will never lack anything again. All their need will be supplied according to his riches. All the property that was lost will be restored. Everything that Elimelech lost, Boaz will redeem and restore to the family. Y'all remember Orpah? This would have provided for Orpah as well had she followed the true and the living God. Verses 9 and 10, Ruth chapter 4. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malin, to be my wife in order to raise up a name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today, and we are still witnessing the work of redemption to this good day. The Lord Jesus is still at work. He is still seeking and saving the lost to as many as believe on his name. His arms are open wide. Those wings are outstretched. And he will spread his covering over as many as will come. I think it's easy for us to forget how precious we are to God. It's easy to talk ourselves into believing that we are no great prize. The enemy will lie to us and we will believe it because it seems so plausible and so true. You're so unworthy, you wretched sinner. And we're like, yes, you're right. You're right. I am. I'm totally unworthy. We forget that we are God's poema, his masterpiece, and he loves us with an everlasting love. And it's not because Jesus doesn't love us because he's required to by the letter of the law. Oh, great. She's coming to me. And because the law said I had to accept them all, I got to take her. That's not what the Lord is saying at all. He is saying, I am in love with you, my beloved and beautiful bride. In love. He bridges the gap between you and the Father, even though you were a miserable sinner. But behold, again, new creations, and Jesus bridges that gap. I am reminded of another story. This one takes place, it comes out of the Civil War era, and it's about a particular Union soldier. He was far from home, and the war was at a fever pitch. No soldiers were being given passes for leave. And this soldier had received word that his much beloved wife was dying. And they had little children at home, many little children. And he was just desperate to get home, to say goodbye to her, and to make sure that those children were provided for. He would come back as soon as he made all these arrangements at home, but he needed so badly to get home and say his farewells and make those provisions. And yet the mandate had already been issued, no passes given. 
And so he was just beside himself and he walked down to the edge of a creek, little uh, water's edge that had to be, happened to be running nearby his camp. And he was so overwhelmed with grief that he just inconsolably got into a little boat that happened to be tethered right there. And he broke down and wept and wept and wept and didn't realize that the boat had become unloosed and was just drifting down the stream until he got some distance down and he hears a little boy's voice say, what's the matter, soldier? And he looks up into this earnest little young boy's face. And he just so beside himself, he just spilled his tale of woe before this little guy. And after he finished, the little boy said, so what you need is a pass. And, and the soldier just looked at him, I explained to you, they're not giving any passes. And the little boy just put his hand out. And the soldier, not having anything better to do, reached up and took it, climbed out of the boat. And now he's trying to right himself and wipe the tears away and clean himself up. And he's thinking, did we just pass a sentry just there? And they kept going and kept going. Pretty soon, here's another guard on duty. And he's thinking, did that guy just wink at this little boy and give him a hasty salute? I must be seeing things through these tears. So he's continuing to clean himself up. And they get to a large set of these big gates armed guards. And, the, and they just open the gates and stand aside. And the little boy walks through with the soldier. Then they're standing before these big doors of this large house. And the little boy just throws the door open and walks into another interior door and opens it up. And Abraham Lincoln says, Tad, what do we have here? And Tad, the son, walks up to the father, still holding the hand of the soldier, and takes his father's hand and stands in the gap between the soldier and his father. And this is a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He finds us in a condition that is just uncontrollably out of our control. And he reaches that hand out and takes it. And there is no guard on duty, no door that is closed that will keep him from the very center of the throne room of the universe on your behalf. Every impediment must stand aside. Every door is standing wide open for the sun. And we come in on those wings of glory before the Father in heaven. Y'all, what's not to do but to reach up and take his hand? If you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior ever, let today be the day when you just reach your hand out and say yes. And let him usher you into the presence of his Father. This is a beautiful day to be saved, and to know that your future, your eternity is secure in Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for many. He is our Goel, our Redeemer, our Savior, our friend, and our bridegroom. And one day soon and very soon, I do believe we're going to be standing in his presence in that very throne room. What a glorious day that will be. And why did he do it all? Because he loves you. He is madly, deeply in love with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. Thank you for sending your beloved son to save us. I do pray that you would help us, each one of us, to live in the light of that love, knowing that we have been saved by grace through faith, and even the faith is a gift from you. Help us, Lord, to walk worthy, to live in victory, and to glorify you all the days of our life. Lord Jesus, we rejoice 
in our bridegroom, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it is in his name that we pray, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And the bride of Christ said, Amen. Isn't it a beautiful thing to study the word of God?